All right. Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. I'm extremely excited today to have Dan Balkowski, Principal Consultant at Product Tranquility, uh, where he focuses on working with B2B SaaS organizations uh, and kind of improving evaluation, right? Uh, he's also a longtime Pragmatic fan. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. So first, let's give our audience a little bit of context for this conversation. Can you tell me a little bit about you and your background and where your work focuses today? Yeah, sure. Um, so way back in the day, I started my career on the software development side of the house. Um, and that was fantastic. Uh, but eventually I realized that you know, I was better suited to focusing on you know, the customers and, and where the code and we, how we wrote that, uh, the product we built um, provided value and how that turned into uh, dollars for the company. And so over time, I, I migrated into a engineering management position and then product management uh, after that and spent uh, a good amount of time in different product management roles at a series of companies and increasing levels of leadership. And uh, yeah, my my journey, you know, from entry level PM to to now has, you know, it, it's taken many forms. Um, so I've, I've worked mostly my entire career in, in technology companies uh, and of those mostly uh, B2B, although uh, prior gig was in at a uh, marketplace, uh, two-sided marketplace company as well. So you've got lots of different experience and background, a varied background, right? You're a recovering developer, uh, lots of product management experience. But one of the things I think uh, that you've really, the, the levers that you've pulled uh, throughout your career and that you do today and as you work with companies is the idea of bringing qualitative and quantitative insights forward. Uh, and so that's kind of where I'm hoping we can dive in today. Um, so let's start just like, let's start with that. Let's talk about in your view, you know, when you were uh, working on uh, understanding your, your customers, your market, your products, what, where do you turn, what techniques do you use to get those insights? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so qualitative and quantitative, I view really have to be in balance. Uh, they, one only gives you half the story. And I say that as a, a self-professed data nerd. Um, I, you know, my engineering experience, uh, my love of uh, math uh, growing up, uh, I just love the data. I love the numbers. Um, but you can only get so far with them. Um, and so as you think about the, you know, I think you, you do have to start with the business goals, which are usually uh, quantitative based. Um, and from there, uh, the as you start to figure out where your customers um, are deriving value, there's really no substitute for talking to them. Um, the the main reason why that is is you don't really have you know as good as as you know it, I've seen over my career uh, the our ability to get really fine grained data from customers, especially with the advent of software as a service, our ability to get you know microsecond by microsecond updates of what customers are doing with our platforms, um, all of the uh, data exhaust from our 
uh, go-to-market systems and customer support platforms that we're able to leverage, you still don't have the full context for how customers, you know, where it is in their in in that you fit in the life of your customers. So um, the entire story around, you know, they yeah, it's great that you can tell that they they were you know in your UI and they they clicked a button and you know maybe they achieved a goal, but you don't know what they were doing outside of that. You know, five minutes ago when they were using another product, you don't have any idea of you know the um, emotions, the anxieties that uh, your your customer is is facing in their job or or as a, as a prospect. Um, and so, you know, I find myself, you know, always pushing you know product managers to you know whatever they tend to they tend to fall on one side of the fence or the other of being very heavy on qualitative or on quantitative and you know my suggestion is always if you're if you're leaning heavy on one you really need to come back the other way and vice versa um and and you know when you're again you're having these uh moments of discovery right then you can build uh, these these stories uh, from your customers and use that to really drive um, change inside the organization as well. So this is the you know I think ultimately right as I think about persuasion of of stakeholders, they tend to get moved by you know two things. One is business results, but then the other is stories directly from the customer's mouth, and it's very difficult to you know, just show an executive the result of an A-B test and have them have a strong emotional reaction to that. Um, and so, you know, coming with your data, having that supported is important, but you also need to have the, the human component as well. Yeah, I like to say that they're often moved by the qualitative, but they're driven by the quant, right? So the, those two sides are really, really key. So one of the areas that I think the quantitative and qualitative approach is so important. One area that I know you you kind of specialize in, in your consultancy is around customer retention and churn. So if we can go just a little bit, a little bit deeper in that area around how the the maybe share some stories of where using those two really helped you understand the the cause or the frictions better than uh, any one view would have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so as you mentioned, you know, I do a lot of work with companies around uh, their retention numbers, and so I think the first thing is making sure that your team is actually looking at the right business metrics um, as software as a service. That business model has proliferated. You know, we're now dealing with a lot of different uh, growth metrics that previously didn't exist and retention is one of them. And so there are multiple flavors and you ha really have to understand in your conversations with you know, your, the entire business, what metric you're actually quoting. So the first major distinction is gross retention versus net retention. And so gross retention is usually what people think of when they're talking about churning customers or losing logos. So that is, I had 100 customers at the beginning of last year, and by the end of the year, I had 90 customers. So my gross retention was 90%. That's great, um, but that only gives you partial part of the story, and that's where the net retention comes in. Where net retention is okay. Out of those 90 customers that stayed, um, 
did they increase their usage? Did they buy other products? Um, did they increase their license size? Did they upgrade tiers? Um, did they downgrade? And you take everything that they did and that becomes the net retention number. Now, I don't want to talk direct benchmarks um, because it can get quite involved. I've written pretty in-depth on this on my blog, but um, depending upon the type of customer you serve, the uh, dollar amounts of your um, the transactions for your product, et cetera, the, the benchmarks can, can uh, vary um, for SMB versus enterprise, for example. Um, but having a firm grasp on those two numbers and what the delta is between them will give you a, a good sense of, of where to start and where the problem is. The next thing that I think you know, really helps is understanding that you want to look at those numbers and break them down further in terms of making sure that you're grouping together like customers. So often the first pass where uh, companies will do this is basic, based upon their like annual contract value. So small customers, medium customers, large customers. Um, and what might be surprising is that you'll find like even the customers are paying the most are actually the stickiest. Um, the reason being is because it's a more considered purchase. And so they're more likely to, to stick around. It's more of an investment to get onboarded. It's more of a process to you know, rip that out of the organization. Um, but it can be counterintuitive when people first look at that of that, oh, well, the people paying the most are the, you know, gonna be you know, potentially the unhappiest and, and leave us the most. It actually tends to be the, the other way. Um, and, you know, then, you know, once you've ha you know, have those breakdowns, then it's, okay, where do we see the most opportunity? And then, you know, as the product manager, how do I go about approaching that in a very structured way? Because the, the thing is, is that you still have a highly blended group of customers, even once you've um, broken them up into those tiers and split out between the net and gross retention. And what I mean by that is um, you often will have very distinct uh, behaviors between customers who were never successfully even onboarded and those who leave you later in the cycle. Um, and you're going to have very different reasons. And so if you just jump into uh, qualitative discovery, customer interviews, without understanding that, when you get back, you're going to have a lot of qualitative data that looks potentially confusing. So what I like to do uh, when I'm working with clients or advising companies, I like to, you know, work with them on segmenting out, you know, that early stage, you know, those early stage uh, non-activated customers. Activation is uh, a fairly common term um, that I really love because it it it's the uh, agreed upon metric in the business that a, a customer has actually experienced value with you and is is fully onboarded. Um, Versus, you know, so, so you'll have those that have been fully onboarded and those that never were. And, you know, when you, you imagine in a, in a B2B context, you come back a year later for a customer that was never onboarded and they have no, they're like, what, what were you talking about? What was that software? Uh, we never got that thing running. Um, you know, I don't even remember what my login is. Uh, that's gonna be a very different conversation uh, from somebody who, you know, maybe they have other uh, reasons. They, you know, they love your product, but maybe there's other reasons that they're leaving. Um, and then I think the thing that also gets uh, you know, missed when folks are looking at 
you know, improving their retention is they don't focus enough on the customers who are being successful. So, you know, as we've, as I've talked, I've sort of delineated two, you know, the, the two kinds of uh, churn segments, right? So the, the non-onboarding versus the, you know, later in the life cycle churning, uh, but also focusing on your most successful customers because, you know, oftentimes you can get misled by only looking at failure. You want to contrast that with success. And that allows you to do uh, a few things. It really allows you, one, to direct your the energy of the entire business into um, motivating your customers to take those actions that are going to make them look more and more like your most successful uh, customers. Um, and that may also have side effects of, you know, into things further upstream in your go-to-market teams like marketing and sales, where you're able to start directing, you know, those teams and how to start attracting more of those customers. And so you'll see that stark difference as you start doing that analysis. And again, you can see in this discussion how, you know, it's, it's not just qualitative or quantitative, but it's, it's breaking down the business metrics into usage metrics, into qualitative, so that you can start to get the full picture of what's actually going on. And I, I love that that example and kind of digging in there because it talks about quant and, and qualitative stuff and segmentation. And of course we use segmentation with churn uh, and we use it throughout, even when you look at developing personas, right? If you go, uh, I think it's really important to consider both factors in defining how many personas you really have uh, just like in how many segments. If I just look at the data of how they they act or perform or their demographics, I'm going to get one cut, but I also need to overlay that sort of with the psychographics and the emotions and the behaviors that you would get from the interviews. Uh, and I really do think that's the only way you kind of get the the full picture of really how many you have and what they're like. Yeah, 100%. Um... You know, segmentation is key. I just don't think enough companies, um, you know, spend enough time thinking about it, um, or or working cross functionally to have a shared definition. Because I think, you know, many times I think the the product org, you know, is is in a position to you know create them, uh, but then do they um, amplify them throughout the organization as, as a shared artifact? So so everyone has a shared understanding of you know, who is a good fit, who is a bad fit. Um, you know, there's, there, there is a regrettable versus non-regrettable churn. Some, some customers, uh, you know, maybe you had very talented salespeople, uh, but they were never meant to be successful with the, with the product you offered. Uh, maybe you're, you're targeting SMB and as a big enterprise customer who is, who's going to be very unhappy for the next 10 years if they stayed with you. Right. Um, and so those things are important, making sure that, you know, your go-to-market teams understand, you know, what is, uh, you know, what does a good prospect look like? Um, and then similarly, you know, all the way to your support or customer success teams, how they, how they can potentially change their um, customer success touch model uh, based upon the needs of a, of a particular uh, customer segment. Um, personas are interesting. I find that um, you mentioned demographics. I find that a lot of that's probably one of the biggest mistakes. Um, and I think it's a, if I, if I think about, I think it's a hangover of um, the old uh, media industry and how you used to uh, buy advertising, right? You would, um, you think of any magazine and you're like, oh, this caters to, 
uh, 40 to 50 year old males of this income bracket, this, you know, caters to 20 to, you know, uh, 30 year old women. Um, and that was just how media buying was done. I find that uh, in general, the demographic breakdowns for personas are not really valuable and, and quite distracting. Um, generally, if uh, I'm working, when I'm working with companies, I, I highly recommend focusing on um, a behavioral segmentation um, or a needs-based segmentation. And that can also uh, filter along lines of like willingness to pay. Um, so I do some work with pricing as well. Um, and so those segmentations tend to um, offer much higher benefits because they become more actionable. Um, because, you know, it, it doesn't really tell the product team necessarily what to do to know that, oh, Dan's a 39 year old male who lives in Texas. Um, it's like, okay, well, it, it, it's going to be very dependent upon you know, the, the needs and the, um, you know, the, the other behaviors I've exhibited and whether to uh, engage in a uh, education campaign or engage in, you know, some sort of uh, other outreach or, um, you know, offer uh, to help, you know, move me on my journey. Great. You know, another place as we talk about personas and we've talked about segmentation and we talked about quant quality that I think is an opportunity uh, for lots of organizations is, and I think they have the way they look at pricing uh, and the way they look at packaging, not necessarily holistic across everything, but leveraging that, that segmentation information in order to make sure that we are, uh, as, as some of our instructors would say, we're, we're charging each segment what they're willing to pay uh, because that's not always the same. And again, that is a combination of quant and, and qualitative in order to get to that, right? There's behaviors you can see in quantitative. There's, there's uh, maybe some competitive information in there, but on the qualitative, you really start to understand why they're paying and the behaviors and maybe how the problems are more or less painful for some pieces in the organization than others. Um, I just, there are a lot of different ways you could take that question, Dan, but I think they'd all be really interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, to, no, yeah. I, no, I, you made you made a lot of very good points. Uh, pricing is, yeah, obviously it's quite an in-depth topic. Um, but I think what you you said was the segmentation definitely applies or should apply for almost all companies to how they do pricing. And and so if you think of your standard um, SaaS pricing page, you usually have a good, better, best. And I think a a, a company that has done this incredibly well. I don't know if they've changed it uh, recently, so uh, but uh, it's been Slack, um, where it's a very clear progression of what each of those good, better, best packages is, um, who it's who it's talking to, um, and that's important on so many levels. So the reason you know I get involved in a lot of pricing and packaging discussions is because you know you'll get. Um, a lot of uh, many companies. So there's there's progressions in, in how companies handle their their um, you know retention and uh, the maturity of of data they collect and analyze. Um, but hopefully, at least you know if you, if your company is not doing it yet, anyone who's listening, at least when companies go out the door, collect you know some sort of reason code. Um, the problem is that usually has you know, any data collection has bias, um, and so you know a, com a com customer running out the door. Uh, maybe is not uh, willing to 
uh, write you the full dear John letter of, 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 all the, of all the mistakes you made along the way, but maybe they just say price. Um, and so often that will be um, a very large uh, reason. And you know, we could have a very um, reasoned debate of, you know, it's never price, it's value, but often it's the pricing was never wrapped around the value in the correct way. And so I think when you were talking about the proper segment, it's like, okay, do we really understand all of the things that a particular segment values and, and can wrap that in a package that's attractive to them so that we're not forcing customers to straddle to maybe the next higher tier where now we're going to run into a bunch of pricing fi friction because we didn't think through our packaging correctly. Um, and it's not necessarily they're not getting value, but we've stretched, you know, we've, we've uh, stretched the balance between price and value to a point that they're not willing to tolerate and stay with us because, um, you know, we forced them into this, this next tier. Um, whereas, you know, there may be other customers that are, are perfectly happy and maybe we'll look at you as a, as a bargain at that, at that same tier. Um, and it, it goes back to really having that sense of what is it that those customers value at each stage and making sure that um, you can align your pricing and packaging to that. Those are some of my favorite topics. I have to say, I could probably <laughs> talk to you forever, Dan. I'm like, ooh, pricing, packaging, segmentation. These are all really great things. Um, well, I think one of the reasons people either tend to maybe push on quant or quant, right? One, uh, I think with, let's, let's talk about both. So if you're focusing too much on qualitative, I want to talk to you about quantitative and, and why it matters. And some reasons that we hear from our market of why they're not doing it is uh, accessibility of data, I, I think is a big place where they, where they kind of push back. So let's talk about, can you give us some hints for those who say, okay, you know, I'd add some, some quantitative research to mine, but, but I just can't, can't get to the data. What are your recommendations? Yeah, hundred um, percent. And I've lived this so, so I can um, completely relate. So um, you know, I, I got a, uh, my, my MBA from um, Kellogg at Northwestern for the fancy marketing people go. So I took a lot of marketing research there. And, you know, a lot of the, those courses were built around, um, you know, not, you know, in product analytics or doing uh, SQL queries, although there, there were some more um, analytics type uh, approaches that I learned there. But, you know, you always have the ability to you know, if you have, uh, you know, the, the way, way we were, you know, coached to do research, market research is you start with qual because you don't really have, you don't, you have no idea what the territory really is until you get some foundation of, of how customers think. And then what you do is you use the quant to back up those hypotheses that you got from the qualitative. And so um, you can do that with surveys. Um, you can do that. Um, you know, and there's there's many different techniques uh, around, you know, survey and um, design is a whole topic in and of itself. And there's a lot of people who who uh, there's a lot of ways to, to do those improperly and and bias your answers and results. Um, but, you know, when I started um, in my PM career at SolarWinds, um, you know, all our products at, at that point were on premise. We had some amount of user monitoring data, but it was not easily accessible. And so that was the main way we got our quantitative insight was through surveys and survey analysis. Um, so you can get a long way on those. Um, the, as you sort of progress in, um, you know, 
maturity, I would say, you know, data maturity uh, as an organization. I think it's it's incumbent on the product organization, whether it's product management or product marketing, to continually push the organization to be more data driven. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, that starts with the product managers themselves in making sure that, hey, it's not just about getting for, you know, let's, let's assume that they have, you know, some amount of uh, telemetry system, a product telemetry system, whether, you know, that's a um, homegrown solution or an off a third party, you know, solution like, like a mixed panel and amplitude. But as the product team, you know, it's, it's your responsibility to make sure that you're carving out a portion of your engineering velocity in order to build out event tracking. Um, and that, and that you're as a responsible PM and a product leader, you're going to, uh, you know, have ceremonies that support the product managers actually going back and, and looking at, at that data and, and what happened. Um, because, you know, as if, if you don't, what ends up happening is this consistent, you know, decay over time where, you know, the data doesn't get used, it becomes untrustworthy, and then nobody uses the data, so it doesn't get used. It becomes more untrustworthy, um, and so it's it's really I think those you know the product leaders in the organization um, are you know it's incumbent upon them to really make sure that you know they're pushing you know the organization every day and everything they do to be more and more data driven. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's never been more you know access to you know analytics than there is today. You know you know everything from you know, the, the companies I mentioned, um, you know, I recently became like a, a segment certified partner, um, the ability to have a, a single, you know, uh, ability to tie all of our, you know, go to market systems with our product analytic systems, um, you know, the tools that, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you had to be a fortune 500 company to bring in, you know, a technical consulting uh, firm to do uh, bespoke, hey, we want to pull data from between our CRM, our ERP, and our you know data warehouse, you know you now can get for you know a fraction of the cost. Um, we're we're running out of excuses to not be data driven organizations uh, these days. Great answer. Okay, so let's let's flip the script. So I'm a person who loves quant. I'm in my spreadsheets all the time. I've got data, 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 but I'm not doing the qualitative. And I think the reason I hear the most, if I look back at my 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 own market research is time. I don't have time to talk to those people. I need immediate answers. What would be your response to them? Yeah, um, I feel that, you know, um, product managers are busy people um, and you have a lot of demands. Um, my, my number one answer is talking to your customers is the number one thing, is the number one priority on your list. No matter what else is being asked of you, it's it's the number one thing you need to be doing, um, and you need to. This is difficult as well, but what I'd say is you need to structure it so that it's habitual. Because what can what usually when that kind of excuse or or objection pops up, it's because somebody's been asked to do a bunch of discovery all at once in like, hey, this is discovery week out of the entire quarter. Um, and that is where you run into those challenges, more so where you have a system or, or you know, work with your organization to set up a system such that every week I have 
three to five customer calls. And, you know, you can, again, if it's your number one priority as a product manager, it'd always be talking to your customers. Um, three to five hours out of a 40 or 50 hour work week is, is, is not, you know, that is totally doable. Um, but that that's just set up as a system. So you always have a customer conversation coming up. Um, and, you know, it, it may not seem like this, but yeah, I, I feel like I'm in, in many of these situations, I, I'm a natural introvert. I did not necessarily enjoy getting on the phone with customers, but every time it's like going to the gym. Like I don't always feel like going to the gym, but a hundred percent of the time I leave the gym, I'm like, oh man, I'm glad I did that. It's the same exact thing with talking to customers. Oh, it totally is. Every time I leave, I'm like, why don't I just do that? I mean, obviously that's not possible, but it's, it's, it's so exciting. And, and I really like how you talked about it as uh, the right answer is to make it habitual, right? Then you're never without the qualitative and it just becomes a, a muscle that you grow. So I think that's, that's great advice. Yeah. And, and sometimes you can't, I mean, there are, there are definitely, you know, times where, you know, it's just, we need a turnaround. I don't have time to go through, um, you know, mock-up reviews or, or, or whatever. I mean, that, that happens, um, but you want to make those the exception, not the rule. Great. All right. So we talked about a bunch of different things today. Uh, if you could get our listeners to do two things differently tomorrow, based on what we talked about today, what would that be? Oh, that's a, that's a big one. Um, the first thing I would say is pay as much attention to how, especially if you're in a software as a subscription type business or any subscription business, pay as much attention to how you're going to retain your customers as you're worried about acquiring them in the first place. Um, and that trickles down into how you, what features you build, how you design those features, what customers you're targeting, um, and the supporting systems that allow you to make sure you understand how customers are or are not being successful after they get acquired. The second would be as product managers, make sure that you understand, you know, I talked a little bit about the formulas for net and gross retention. Um, make sure you get a facility and ease with the business metrics that your senior leadership talks about. And, and cares about. Um, it will give you that much more persuasiveness as you're trying to move your initiatives forward. Um, and also, you know, you get to be the strong one in the room who's, you know, flagging early warning signals from, you know, you're going to be close to the customers, you're going to be close to the, the data that we talked about. And then you can tell the compelling story to your executives of, of how that's affecting those top line business goals. Awesome. Oh, Dan, this was great. If people want to uh, to read more of your thoughts, can you shout out to the blog address for us? Yeah, yeah. So um, I have a website. It's producttranquility.com, all one word. Um, and you can find my blog on there. Uh, you can reach out to me uh, or anything else. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm somewhat active on, on Twitter at Dan underscore Belkowski. Uh, but uh, yeah, probably you know my website would be the better place for folks to check me out product tranquility. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Dan. Uh, it was really great having you on and I hope we can do it again. Appreciate it, Rebecca. Thank you so much. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. 